Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as usual, we have got so much to cram in during our time together. Loads to reflect on, brilliant questions. Uh, Yeah, by the end of it, we'll have made sense of it all. And some of you will have cooked bread and run all over the place. Um, But anyway, thank you for tuning in. Um, I'm going to reflect on a few things in a moment. Then we will turn to your questions, which cover just about every element of the wild, stormy times that we're living through. Uh, Before all of that, if it's okay with you, I'll just mention a few things that I'll be doing live in the coming days. Um, Live at the Derby Book Festival this coming Friday, talking about the book, The Prime Minister's We Never Had, and drawing some topical parallels uh, when reflecting on those Prime Ministers we never had. Um, That will be fun. I think David Lammy's on just before, so that will be, yeah, um, I wonder what future holds for him. Anyway, that's a wholly peripheral thought. Uh, Then on Saturday, yeah, it's Rock and Roll Politics, the Barnard Castle special, live at the Witham Art Centre, right next to Specsavers in Barnard Castle, I'm told. Uh, And uh, yeah, that one isn't being streamed, so it's going to be a one-off. We need to get together for that one. I will reflect on the person who made Barnard Castle famous, but in ways that will surprise the audience, I think. Uh, That's, for those of you who don't know, which is none of you, uh, Dominic Cummings. But there'll be a lot more. I mean, it's such a fascinating time to be doing a live show. So that's on Saturday. If you are in the Northeast, make a weekend of it. I know quite a few people who plan to do just that. In fact, a friend told me it's impossible to get accommodation. It's like kind of Madonna at the O2 or something, you know. Anyway, uh, do come along. I'll put the link on for tickets with the blurb. Then the following week on the Wednesday, I'm at the Richmond Book Festival, uh, the Richmond, the London Richmond, uh, talking about prime ministers we never had. So there are a few kind of live gigs uh, coming up uh, in the next few days, and I hope to see some of you there. Oh, yeah, and of course, how can I forget... Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, is on at King's Place on December the 9th. So there are live tickets for that, and it's being streamed as well for those of you who live on the moon. Uh, Given our global dimension, I'm sure there are some of you who fit into that category. I think politics is driving me crazy. Anyway, I'm going to begin briefly with the budget. I know politics moves so fast that now seems like ancient history, but it is so interesting to me how budgets become mythologized very speedily. Uh, An impression is formed that's kind of very hard to dislodge, and that impression is quite often wrong. Um, I've talked before about Ken Clark, who features in the book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, who, because he was jolly and jazz-loving and funny and pro-European, there's a kind of assumption about his budgets that they were, you know, kind of exuberant in their big spending ebullience, whereas Clark was an absolute economic Thatcherite and left Labour in 1997. There's a kind of myth about that, that they inherited a fantastic economic situation. They really didn't. 
because of the lack of public spending and the need to find the money to invest. Anyway, this one, the Sunak budget, was extraordinary. That bit, you know, it's been referred to many times now, but he put a kind of Keynesian case for spending now on public services as a way of boosting the economy and productivity. And then there was that little section at the end where he, in effect, repudiated the previous hour by saying we shouldn't turn to the state. Uh, Community and non-state methods are often more effective. And he wanted to return to low taxes and tax cuts in the years to come. And in a sort of clunky way, it's been viewed as Johnson's budget up until that little paragraph at the end where... Sunak, who is not the gifted politician that many assume he is, in my view, and this is an example of it, it was too clunky. Without a gear shift, he kind of just moved on to this Thatcherite mantra, having been a Keynesian for the previous hour. You've got to do things a bit more deftly than that. I find as well some Tory MPs are getting a bit irritated by the self-promotion that accompanies uh, these events. But anyway, the myth around the wider budget is that this was a great tax and spend event uh, burdening that very emotive term the tax burden Uh, the UK with high taxes uh, in a way that is wholly unprecedented uh, and all the rest of it and yet the outcome of that budget is this that spending levels Uh, on public services will return roughly to where they were in 2010. And that, incidentally, was after a pretty rough period at the end of that Labour government post the financial crash. These levels are not as high as much of Europe, and nor is, in inverted commas, the tax burden as high as the rest of Europe. It is the same old situation in Britain, uh, that voters seek European levels of public service and US levels of tax. And after, where are we now, 2021, 11 years of one-party rule to return to those levels of 2010 is not profligacy. Uh, But there is another dimension to this. And here I think Johnson deserves credit. He is surrounded by people who think like Sunak in that cabinet. Uh, He's chosen a cabinet largely of Brexiteers, and although Brexit is not producing a Thatcherite outcome, uh, part of their Brexit thinking is formed by uh, a passionate support for Thatcherite economics, a smaller state, lower taxes. They're all kind of John Redwood types, around that cabinet. But such is Johnson's dominance of his government at the moment, uh, he prevails. And he prevails over Sunak, who is not a particularly muscular personality. Um, And as far as spending is returning to near civilised levels, that's clearly down to him. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. There is a part of Johnson that is Keynesian, 
There always has been. When he was mayor of London, he used to go to the Tory conference and argue that spending on the underground in London helped the whole British economy because parts were being produced in Derby and Sheffield that went towards making the underground more robust in London. And it was a sort of Keynesian argument that investment led to growth and jobs and prosperity. So he's always had that Keynesian streak. But Johnson, above all, is, you know, having your cake and eating it. So there's a part of him that is Thatcherite as well. So he won't disagree with Sunak uh, in hoping for pre-election tax cuts. He'll want to fight the next election on claiming to revive public services and now offering tax cuts as a kind of Brexit dividend. That will be the sort of message. But anyway, to his credit, he recognised the almost unavoidable need to invest now in a way that none of his colleagues would have done if he wasn't there. And he recognised, although in a chaotic way, the need for a tax rise to pay for social care. It's chaotic because it's not going to be spent on social care. It's going to be spent on the NHS. Um, So the whole thing's a mess. But there wouldn't have been that tax rise without him. Uh, And it is a reflection of his dominance that this was very much Johnson's budget with that uh, kind of Monty Python end, which contradicted the rest of the budget, which was, as I say, a reflection, I think, of Sunak's lack of political skill. What Sunak does have, as I reflected on last week, as an interviewee and a public performer, he has a plausibility about him, for now at least. Um, He is an effective interviewee. And it's that compassionate tone that he adopts at all times. And the fun-loving, you know, being photographed with his dog and all the rest of it, although, as I say, it's starting to annoy some Tory MPs, is part of a kind of wider projection. But I think he's politically clumsy. And also absolutely stuck in an outdated past that was tested to destruction by David Cameron and George Osborne when they came back with a kind of turbocharged Thatcherite economy. And Johnson, although torn, is closer to moving the Tory party back to a more one-nation type of Toryism. Uh, but he's torn. So, And because he can't plan, it will be chaotic. And where I have some sympathy uh, with the critics of the spending, very limited, because that spending is absolutely the bare minimum required in a country where public services are again creaking hopelessly. Um, But where I do is because Johnson can't plan ahead, there has been no planning as to how this money will be spent. So for example, the big and necessary increases in NHS spending um, coincides with proposals to reform the NHS partly to end the atomization of the NHS, but in ways that are quite confused. So where is this spending going to go? And how temporary is it? In other words, the claim is that the tax rise to help with the NHS backlog um, is temporary because it's meant to be going on social care within a couple of years. But that won't happen. You can't train additional nurses and doctors and then sack them in a couple of years' time uh, to spend the money elsewhere. So in, in a way that is part of the definition of character of this government, there will be chaos as the money raised is 
spent because there has been no clear thinking about where the spending will go. But that apart, it was very interesting. The IFS, you know, the sort of godlike figures from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, descended to say, yeah, this was a tax and spend budget. And that kind of got the headlines. Oh, yeah, you know, the gods have said it's a tax and spend budget. And, of course, all the columnists came out with the cliché, this is a labour budget, this moves onto labour terrain, this buggers labour up, the usual stuff. You know, John Rental, this is a Blairite budget. Everything with him is judged as to whether it's Blairite or not. But he said that about the Cameron and Osborne budgets, which were far removed from this one. But anyway, they, there we go. Dan Hodges, oh, yeah, they've moved onto Labour's lawns. But but what uh, Paul Johnson, the, the ultimate god at the IFS, added immediately after he made the observation that, yes, this is a tax and spend budget, was, and it was absolutely unavoidable and essential, that it was a tax and spend budget. They could not carry on after the austerity of the uh, Cameron Osborne era, an austerity incidentally presented across the media as centrist modernising politics, uh, where it was actually to the right of Margaret Thatcher and to the right of virtually every government in the Western world, including the Bush administration's response to the financial crash, where they immediately felt the need to put in an economic stimulus. Anyway, that's by the by, but actually part of the context of this budget. Paul Johnson said they had to do it. It was the minimum required to address the situation vis-a-vis -vis the state of public services and departmental budgets. So it's not a great sort of Keynesian splurge, a reckless kind of, oh yeah, let's become tax and spend just because of the red wall and all the rest of it. It was, in the view of the gods from the IFS, required. That doesn't mean it was inevitable. As I say, I think if Sunak was a free agent, he wouldn't have done it. Liz Truss in the Foreign Office, now a convert to the small state, wouldn't have done it. Um, indeed, we know that Liz Truss wondered whether the tax rise for the NHS was necessary in the sort of 10-minute cabinet discussion they had on it uh, a few weeks ago. Um, but that was the verdict of the IFS, uh, that it was, yes, uh, a tax and spend budget, but yes, the minimum required given the state of public services. Which brings me on to something interesting and complex and nuanced. You probably missed it last week because so much was going on, but um, the BBC announced it was going to review uh, in different, on di with different themes uh, impartiality, its impartiality, getting external people in to um, review the impartiality of the BBC on certain themes. And I think the first one is going to be in this very issue of tax and spend, uh, which is fascinating uh, on so many levels. First of all, in making that announcement, there was no attempt to define impartiality. It is on one level relatively straightforward. In my view, I've done both. I've been a BBC correspondent uh, where you are impartial and I think that is easier to do than writing columns 
where you have to advance an opinion. Because in writing those columns, you know, opinions are fairly commonplace, frankly. Uh, but in columns, you have to be distinct, even though the opinion you are advancing will have some familiarity about it, inevitably. But you have to come up with some fresh insight every time. And incidentally, I think it is the columns that, whether you agree or disagree with them, are more enlightening uh, than the huge constraints that are put on broadcasters uh, to say, well, on one side there is this, but on the other side they're saying that, thank you and good night. I, I found it a kind of distortion in itself when I did it. I remember during the John Major era being a BBC political correspondent uh, and the kind of reporting, though balanced and impartial on most levels, was a distortion. Let me give you one example. Uh, during the turbulence of the John Major era, how do you as broadcasters highlight that turbulence? You know, as a columnist, you can slag off Major. And it was very significant when Tory columnists went for him, like Simon Heffer. Uh, you thought, well, well he's, if he's lost the Tory columnist, he's in trouble. But how as an impartial broadcaster do you highlight it? And sometimes what we did uh, distorted the situation in that major government. I remember the front time, Sunday Times front page ran a big photo of Major with his head in his hands looking in despair but it, he hadn't been in despair. The photo uh, caught him unfortunately, I don't know, picking up a glass of water but it looked as if his head was in despair. And at the BBC we followed it up as a kind of crisis for Major and we balanced it by getting the Tory party chairman on to defend him. But that in itself reinforced a sense that he was going through some personal crisis. And so what is impartial? And in terms of public spending and the reporting of that and tax, um, it is very interesting because I bet they've started with that because a lot of the right-wing papers, say programmes like the Today programme, always have um, always highlight big spending demands from charities or whatever agencies um, as if money fell from the skies uh, whereas uh, actually they should be highlighting more regularly the benefits of tax cuts and not spending on these things it's a kind of you know it, it, it's it's a sort of telegraph view of things um, whereas my view is for example that the BBC, in a, it wasn't deliberate or overt, none of it is. There's no deliberate bias at the BBC at all. But take the Osborne austerity period from when he was shadow chancellor and then chancellor, where he framed the whole debate about the need to wipe out the deficit uh, and put the test to the opposition whether they agreed with him and what they would cut, as this was the only responsible way forward. Now, that agenda was bought unthinkingly by lots of uh, BBC outlets. And I remember Andrew Neil, who presented at the time five or six programmes a week, every Labour politician, so what will you cut to address the deficit? It was the theme bought unthinkingly uh, by parts of the BBC. Now, Labour should have been clever enough to address it and turn it round, um, and they failed to do that. But it was fascinating that this agenda was accepted. And 
each interview with a Labour politician became like a sort of session with an accountant. Okay, so you would cut that. What about that? But that still leaves a deficit of X. And then when uh, Osborne, and it was still Osborne, after the referendum, actually, the Brexit referendum, announced he had given up on his target. He was still Chancellor for a bit uh, to wipe out the deficit in the second term of that government. No questions were asked about the deficit anymore by anyone at the BBC. So, as I say, it's not overt. There's nothing overt. The, the, for a start, the whole management structure of the BBC is too cha chaotic for anyone to impose a view as such. But, as I say, without kind of thinking about it, they bought wholly the agenda that wiping out the deficit, good, the only question is how. And that was the real test, and whether Labour would admit their spending whilst in government was a cause of the crisis that arose after the financial crash. Um, and so if I was exploring impartiality on tax and spend as an outsider, I would like to analyse that as much as the sort of telegraph perspective that the Today programme and others indiscriminately take up uh, causes which involve higher public spending. But no doubt if they appointed somebody with that telegraph perspective, they will conclude that not enough is done to challenge the spending demands of various kind of pressure groups. And so I think they've opened up a kind of hornet's nest again with this. Um, and I understand why they're doing it. They're under huge pressures to appear to be responding to the views on the right that they take a certain set of assumptions with them wherever they go, the BBC. I think they carry assumptions too, but not those that the right think they carry, actually. Um, and anyway, God knows where that's all going to end up, but I expect it will cause more kind of internal tensions and neurosis and pressures. Um, and you can already sense some of the programmes feeling it, actually. It's not that the programmes are scared of number 10. I think the Director General is scared of number 10, but that's fair enough, really. And he's in negotiation over the licence fee and the future of the BBC, and, you know, Johnson has shown where he has stands by putting Nadine Doris in as Culture Secretary and wanting Dacre to run, you know, the whole Ofcom thing and so on. Um, but program editors and others in that sort of multi-layered organization do feel pressure what the, a director general can sort of determine a mood no more than that even john burt who was accused of being a control freak and was in my view a brilliant director general on most fronts um he told me you know i try and get things done and you pull a lever and nothing happens but he created a certain mood and clearly with tim davy they know he's trying to appease the government they know he was a Tory once and a chairman who uh, was a big donor to the Tory party those things were wiry and influence uh, editors who are nervous and insecure in a complex hierarchy uh, and now this sort of further scrutiny on an ill-defined term called impartiality uh, will intensify I suspect that sense of neurosis Curious mix the BBC of neurosis and complacency and entitlement is a very bizarre uh, combination. Um, anyway, if I were to look at it, I would want to look at that as well. They've got some bright people, do you? I mean, 
uh, Robbie Gibb, who is a bright guy, and incidentally, I, I think was assiduously impartial, or tried to be, as far as you can be, when he worked at the BBC. And Ian Hargreaves, who was a brilliant uh, editor of News and Current Affairs in the uh, John Burt era, uh, they've been looking into all of this. And uh, they, they, they are interesting and thoughtful, I think. But the, the outcome of uh, external people reflecting on impartiality well let's see how it goes uh i see trouble ahead um talking about trouble ahead this you know fishing row with france what a mess and and the context is absolutely clear no doubt macron is playing politics partly uh you know oh shock playing politics over Europe. That's new to us lot um, here in Britain uh, with this fishing dispute. But the context is very clear. He, Macron, is saying, well, you know, let's have some flexibility over fishing rights uh, arising from that rush withdrawal agreement. Rushed because Frosty, old Lord, uh, Lord Frosty Frost, um, uh, negotiated on the assumption that no deal would be uh, quite a possibility and almost welcome to Johnson, only to be told at the last minute he needed to get a deal. And anyway, Britain had already said it had to be all sorted within a year, even though Europe offered for it to be longer. So it was rushed, and there are all kinds of ambiguities and unresolved issues within that deal. It's the theme of the deal that nothing was really agreed. And no doubt, uh, France is pushing it a bit with their interpretation of fishing rights and who gets what licenses over a limited uh, area of the seas. Um, but the context is Britain and the protocol. you know. And you can understand Macron. By the way, relations between Britain and France are disastrous, have been for months worse than the public kind of uh, mood. Um Macron looking there at Britain saying, well, we negotiated this protocol, but uh, how outrageous that the EU believed that we were serious about it and, you know, are interpreting the law uh, in a way that um, we disapprove of. Of course, opens up the option of other countries to say, right, we interpret the withdrawal agreement this way. If Britain does it, we can do it too. So here's how we're going to do it with fishing. And then old Frosty steps in with his bother boots and his Union Jack socks to say this is wholly unacceptable when he himself and his government openly threatened to break international law over, I think, the protocol. Uh, What a mess. Um, And, you know, for the cop thing to be taking place in Glasgow uh, with Britain falling out with Europe yet again um, is just... I tell you what, I'm, I'm turning more and more to escape to the gloriously insane world of football. Uh, I mean, I'm a Spurs season ticket holder. They've just sacked their manager again, Nuno. It's a kind of world of escapism to go into when politics is so uh, dire. I mean, I was kind of, in fact, I was at the game on Saturday against uh, watching Spurs lose three nil to Manchester United. And, uh, there was a lull and I looked on Twitter and there was Frosty tweeting about France and threatening France and all this kind of thing. Now, I'm sure it's going to be hugely electorally popular. You know, oh yeah, good old Britain, you know, 
battling it out again against Europe, like Churchill and all the rest of it. But I wonder in the end whether Johnson, I mean, Frosty won't have, Frosty will think he's just carrying out Johnson's wishes. But I wonder whether Johnson will want a trade war. Um, and maybe he will. He's very hard to read. Um, and I, he won't have thought through the consequences of a trade war. He, he, his fascination is with individuals. You know, I'm, am I being Churchill? Am I being Roosevelt? Am I being a, one of the Greek heroes from the past? Um, he doesn't think through consequences, but a trade war would have pretty dire ones in a situation where already the OBR saying Brexit is going to lead to a bigger hit to the British economy than the pandemic. Anyway, on it goes now. Dominique Joule, our regular correspondent from France, has written about this very topic. Uh, Boris Johnson appears to be picking fights with his three closest neighbours, namely Scotland, Ireland and France. Is there any other country in the world which places itself in this position? I, don't, I can't think of one at the moment. He's also potentially on a collision course with the USA in the context of the protocol. Yep. Apart from short-term populist advantage, what, if any, do you think is his strategy regarding international relations? I think, Dominica, we're into this having your cake and eating it philosophy of uh, close as he gets to a political philosophy. Um, I think, yeah, he, he wants, you know, this phrase, we're not going to roll over with this one. That's the kind of phrase coming up in relation to France and fish. And we're always on fish, aren't we? something about fish um uh, but you know at the same time he always say yeah, our good friends relations uh, with europe so i think he kind of wants both he, he's up for the churchillian rouse and he knows that they are electorally popular via the british media who will talk it up as great britain standing up for its interests against these vile french or europeans and quite a lot of the electorate will like it. But at the same time, there's enough of him, Johnson, to recognise that, that could have calamitous economic consequences. Um, and I th he, he sometimes says we've sucked the lemon dry in relation to Brexit, whereas old Frosty you know, keeps on going and, uh, and thinks that's what Johnson wants. Well, half of Johnson does, but not the other half. So he'll want to have a row and yet maintain relatively decent relations um he won't be able to have both um but you know what a mess um kathy mears writes about the budget she was saying i suppose my question would be whether you think that the contradictions inherent in the sunak chancellorship will end up becoming sufficiently unsupportable as to damage his undoubted leadership ambitions not to mention the tory prospects at the next election when i wonder I think the, there won't be an early election, but I'm just guessing. Um, on Sunak, yeah, I mean, I said earlier he was not a particularly muscular chancellor. I don't think he is. But uh, he unquestionably wants to be the next leader, although that does involve a vacancy. As I argue in my book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, chancellors are often seen as the next likely prime minister or leader. But there needs to be a vacancy. And that he won't challenge Johnson so he must wait for Johnson to implode or go of his own volition and only one prime minister has gone of his own volition uh, and that was ha in a planned way and that was Harold Wilson um, but the incoherence could go either way if Labour are clever and 
the combination of Rachel Reeves and Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Treasury team, suggests they may well be clever. Uh, they will expose the inconsistencies and the bizarre theme of optimism, which was, of course, uh, was the Boris Johnson narrative of the budget, the new era of optimism, the new age of optimism, when actually the forecast for growth by the time roughly of the next election is about 1%. Um, these are inconsistencies that depend on an opposition to expose and then become serious themselves. Um, now, we don't know yet whether Labour are up to it. Um, they haven't been so far, but I was impressed with Rachel Reeves' response to the budget, a very difficult thing to do. She, of course, had to do it at the last moment because Keir Starmer had COVID and Bridget Phillipson in interviews. They, they are, I've talked about this before, um, they are worth watching. Um, and uh, I think are a, a, a powerful partnership as a shadow treasury team. And that will have an impact on how Sunak does. I mean, he needs to be challenged. He won't be challenged much by the media, uh, but um, so over to the opposition. Let's see. Uh, Stuart Wall then wonders um, how you reconcile Sunak's economic policy with Osborne's given that Osborne has said he supports this budget. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, Osborne claimed it to be a sort of fiscally conservative budget, but Osborne has to feel that his period of turbocharged Thatcherism was not freakishly uh, outdated, but absolutely part of a continuing pattern. Um, but it is the reason that Sunak would give is that where there were substantial spending increases, he raised taxes to pay for them. So in that sense, he wasn't borrowing to pay and was being therefore fiscally conservative. But actually, as Paul Johnson implied via the IFS, uh, this was more a budget to repair the damage done by Osborne's real-term spending cuts as a you know wholly misguided response to the global crash and almost unique uh, in the western world most governments opted for an economic stimulus uh, he and Cameron real-term spending cuts so it is hard to reconcile the two in many respects but Sunak is closer ideologically to Osborne um, than he is to a kind of Keynesian approach of half of Boris Johnson, if you know what I mean. Mike Tisdall wonders whether the figure closest to Boris Johnson is John Prescott. Although so much of the perceptions of these two figures are bound up with social class where they are poles apart. Beneath that, I believe there are similarities in approach and appeal. I, I'm not sure, Mike. I mean, John Prescott, I know what you mean both have a public facade of authenticity and a slightly kind of, you know, kind of bumbling public persona. But Prescott, at times, could really focus on policy detail in a way that Johnson can't. Um, and Johnson has had the ruthlessness to be a leader and winner. And Prescott was never going to be a leader. Um, I, he never really wanted to be leader. He wanted to be deputy leader. He got it, of course, and deputy prime minister. 
whereas if Johnson had been a deputy prime minister, the prime minister, whoever he or she was, would have been in constant fear that Johnson was about to make a move. Uh, Blair never feared that about Prescott. He did about Gordon Brown, but not about Prescott. Um, Okay, James Newman was just wondering what you and your listeners' views are on the Labour front bench. I remember columnist Nick Cohen saying a while back that Labour lacked gravitas on its front bench compared to the new Labour era. In my view, it's improved a lot with Reeves, Powell, Nandy, Lammy, Thornbury, etc. Ed Miliband has also got better in the media. I I think that is interesting. Quite often, there is a moment when a shadow front bench becomes weighty and we don't really notice. We continue to look back with nostalgia at previous shadow cabinets and note a weightiness that appears to be missing now. Incidentally, it happened in the build-up to 1997 where there were many columns, although Labour then got a very rosy, tolerant media, Uh, saying that the shadow cabinet was weak uh, and it was all Blair and Brown. It was mainly Blair and Brown, but it was, in retrospect, a really substantial shadow cabinet in the build-up to 97, even if they were dominated by a duopoly at the top. And I I can see now, and it's, it's one of the things that Starmer deserves some credit for, um, is that the shadow cabinet is weightier than perception accepts. I think Rachel Reeves is doing well as Shadow Chancellor. Um, David Lammy is a formidable interviewee and performer. And I mentioned Bridget Phillipson earlier. So yeah, I think that um, it is it is growing a bit, but it has to convey a sense of owning the future and a sense of momentum and purpose towards seizing that future. And that is largely down to the leader, uh, with the Shadow Chancellor being the next most important one. Um, Let's have a few more uh, questions. Lee Whitehill says, uh, oh, oh, he listens to the podcast whilst walking the dogs in the dark mornings in Hemel Hempstead. It's got a bit lighter now, Lee, isn't it, with the clocks back? Anyway, I I hope you enjoy the walking and listening. Uh, And he wonders about Sunak delivering his own double whammy, that reference to Labour's tax uh, and spending plans at the 1992 election, you know, the Chris Patton as the party chairman, double whammy, you know, all this kind of stuff, Uh, whether actually Sunak is now with more taxes and higher prices um, delivering a double whammy. Well, that that is quite... Now, can Labour do the equivalent? That's what the Tories did about Labour's plans in 92 very effectively. The Tories won that election the fourth in a row. So let's see whether Labour can project and frame in a similar way. Um, I always get questions about electoral reform and Stephen Townsley points out something quite interesting. Uh, All this talk about PR is imprecise. I remember in the 1990s a Labour Party report on PR from Lord Plant. Oh yeah, I remember it. Does anyone else remember here listening the Lord Plant report 
the plant report, I can't, you know, at the time it was really highly charged. John Smith was leader, himself quite wary of electoral reform. But they were backing the plant report. And before Blair became leader, we were committed to a referendum on electoral re reform. But uh, based around that plant report, I can't even remember what the proposal was. And then, as Stephen points out, Roy Jenkins was then asked to do his own electoral reform proposals after the 97 election, which were never put to a referendum, even though Labour had been pledged to do it. So on it goes. And I agree. People say, oh, yeah, what about electoral reform? Yeah, but what electoral reform? And who's going to sort that one out? And on it, on it goes. It's why I'm on the sceptical wing about electoral reform. Unlike most of you, I get the feeling. Um, okay, uh, yeah, interesting one from Martin Jones. Uh, he looked back at Callaghan and Brown taking over at the end of long, tired governments. Uh, could either, on taking over... This is Callaghan and Brown have relaunched as new administrations their Labour governments, just as Major did from Thatcher and Johnson from May. Or were events inevitably their undoing? Or were they never prime ministerial material in the first place? Well, yeah, good, good, interesting. Let's have a bit of history. Um, you are right, and it is very interesting. When Major came in, in November 1990, it felt like a change of government. And Neil Kinnock has said to me since, Christ, they all thought there'd been a bloody election and there was a new government. Sorry, that wasn't real. That wasn't how Kinnock speaks, but you know what, you know what I mean. Um, and Johnson clearly reinvented the entire government, so voters think they've got a new government uh, when he took over from Theresa May. And Callaghan and Brown could not reinvent. Uh, Brown tried really hard. He faced a great dilemma in that he felt he needed to try and retain the support of the Sun newspaper, the Times. He wanted to at least get sympathetic coverage, as Tony Blair had done with the Murdoch papers. So on one level, he, he wanted to imply continuity with Blair. But on another, he knew he had to indicate change. And it was a really tough conundrum, which he never fully resolved. Was he a change candidate or a continuity candidate? And he, he didn't do it. And then when he failed to call the early election, um, or Scotch rumours about an early election, one or the other, uh, I think he was doomed, actually, and was saved by the financial crisis, which gave him a real purpose to which he rose. Callaghan similarly he did feel different to Wilson, uh, who was very tired by the end when Wilson retired. Um, but the context was a record. Oh, there's, there goes the phone. Hold on. I'll switch the phone off. There you go. Uh, but he was uh, facing, Callaghan was facing the same circumstances as Wilson multiplied by 10 with the winter of discontent, the strikes and all the other stuff going on. And so it was really impossible to, to, to reinvent. But um, they, you know, again, I'm being very fair to Johnson. In fairness to Johnson, he faced a nightmarish inheritance with the Brexit thing. I couldn't quite see how he was going to get it done. Well, he hasn't got it done. But on, on his terms, you won an election, got a landslide or near landslide, uh, which politically was a means for reinvention uh, with all this with this red wall and everything else. Um, 
so yeah I don't think the space was there in the end for Gordon Brown uh, or Jim Callahan. Um, both actually did have leaderly skills and contrary to mythology I think Brown did have a kind of sense of what he wanted to do in number 10 uh, which would have differed if he had won an election quite significantly to Tony Blair, but he never did and therefore never got the space to develop. Um, okay, I'm going to finish now. I've got loads. Oh, I've got two I want to do. Yeah, I'm going to finish because there was a reference to this last week. This is from Charlie Knight, who's Stephen Lamb's nephew. Stephen Lamb wrote last week a mention that his nephew Charlie Knight was a student in Bath, I think. Anyway, I said, oh, well, if he's li- and he, and that he listens to the podcast. So I said, well, Stephen, you are a great regular correspondent. What about hearing from Charlie? Well, he's written right away. Uh, in the Budget uh, Week podcast, you mentioned that many view Rishi Sunak as having a sense of confidence about him, however unfounded it might be. This sense of supreme confidence is projected from most of the cabinet as well as the prime minister. Is there a constructive way that Labour and other opposition parties can change this confidence without coming across as pessimistic, sorry, can challenge this confidence without coming across as pessimistic or gloomy? Yeah, it's a good question, Charlie, because what an opposition must never do is come over as gloomy or pessimistic. And the art of opposition is partly to absolutely undermine and expose the unjustified confidence of a government if the government does exude confidence. And on one level, you're right, this one does. Era of optimism, new age of optimism, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, So the art of opposition is to expose the fact that as things stand currently, there is absolutely no grounds for a government to exude confidence, but that if there were to be a change of government, uh, the sun will shine once more, to quote Cameron when he was in opposition. Let the sun shine. You know, that optimism is always appealing to an electorate. And with Blair, new Labour, new Britain, you know, he, he, he tried to conflate... A, a, a new projection of the Labour Party with an optimism about the country as a whole but he did so while exposing the flaws of the major government not that the major government did look particularly confident um, so that is the opposition's art um, and if you can't do the artistry you shouldn't be uh, in leading positions in the opposition you have to have the artist's skill Um, And and that's the way you do it, Charlie. Anyway, thank you for responding so quickly. Finally, Judy Frew from Bridport. uh, Oh, looking forward to the Christmas special at King's Place. Great, Judy. Yeah, we will have some fun and make sense of the entire year then on December the 9th. Um, I'm reading your book about prime ministers and have the next one uh, ready as well. Um, oh, that's the, the so the sequel, the prime ministers we never had, and I'm wondering what your next book will be about. Can you give us a clue, Judy? I've got an idea for one, very different from those last two that you're very kindly reading. But the idea is so semi-formed that I'd rather not talk about it. If that's okay, uh, I'll tell you 
when the idea is fully formed um, and and the publishers have given the go-ahead because it's be time soon, not yet, to get going with another one. Still promoting this one, Julie, which gives me a cue to remind you again. Uh, yeah, Derby Book Festival next Friday. Um, talking about the Prime Ministers we never had. Live for the Barnard Castle Rock and Roll Politics Special on Saturday at the Witham Art Centre. Uh, and hope to see as many of you from that area as possible then. And... Um, then talking about the book again at the Richmond Book Festival the following Wednesday. Uh, I think that one streamed as well. I think they quite a lot of the book festivals stream. Um, but thank you all. I've got to go. Um, and there were so many other brilliant questions which I will return to. Um, fantastic one again from Evangeline, Evangeline Bell, um, who always writes... She, she delves deep, as you all do, um, and uh, has ideas about how Labour should focus on a slightly different agenda. I'll come, I'll come to it. Uh, Jeff Strange, always br brilliant insights. She, he, he highlights Bridget Phillipson, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, he predicts she's going to be the next uh, or the first Labour Prime Minister. Oh, God, yeah, so many great questions. Uh, Neil Folks about, um, oh, yeah, constitutional matters electoral reform nhs reform uk constitution house of lords yeah that's great james munro uh, uh, reflecting on the blair brown documentary um and is there a blair type out there now that could defeat the tories i i'd like to reflect a bit more on that james and i will do uh because i don't think that's the right question that needs to be posed in the new context Joshua Connor, great questions um, uh, about political discourse and how it should improve. And as I've been recording this, great questions have come in oh, from all kinds of uh, people, which I will try and answer next time. Uh, Noah Keat has been uh, wondering about COP and economic growth and the compatibility between the two. Uh, oh yeah, we've had another one from Dominica about the situation between France and Britain and of course she is based in France. I'll return to him uh, when I can next time but as I say please if you can join me at the book festivals or live at the Witham Art Centre in Barnard Castle next Saturday. We will have some fun whilst delving deep and making sense of it all. Thanks so much for listening today. Have a good week and see you very soon. Bye. Bye.